Good afternoon. If you'd open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking at a different passage today because I want to rejoice with you over a full year of God's goodness. And that's exactly what it is, a full year of God's goodness. In many ways, Redemption Bible Church is a church plant. It's perhaps the oddest church plant I've ever heard of in the sense of how everything began and how everything's continuing to go. And, and, but I will say this, God's goodness is on every page of this story so far, isn't it? And I have been thrilled that my family has been a part of uh, what God has been doing here. And I'm just excited today to be able to share with you the word. And uh, when I was thinking about the fact that I was asked to come speak on the one-year anniversary, I thought, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to think about what would be necessary for Redemption Bible Church not to last one year, but to last a hundred years. And of course, that should be the goal, shouldn't it? That this church would be self-perpetuating, that this church would remain until the Lord comes. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to think about what a church succession plan would be. That is, what this is, is, is a plan for how we are going to, as an assembly here, endure until the Lord comes. Now, I'm looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, and what an appropriate text to look at here, because as Paul is writing 2 Timothy, you may know Paul is coming to the end of his own life. Paul is imprisoned, likely for the second time in Rome. There's some debate, but it, it, it's likely his second time in Rome. And the individual who's on the throne is a guy by the name of Nero. If you've heard anything about Roman history, you've heard about the guy Nero. Not a good guy. And Paul is imprisoned by him. This is the guy who's been burning Christians, killing Christians. And Paul is imprisoned by him, and Paul is convinced that he's not gonna make it out of this one. Paul has walked out of many prisons. In fact, if you remember the book of Philippians, he talked about the fact that he didn't know how things would go there. And he said, I'm, I'm in a straight betwixt two, this King James language, or I've got this debate in my own mind. Do I continue on or does the Lord take me? But I think he's gonna make me remain. We come to 2 Timothy though, and all of a sudden the tune has changed. Paul is quite convinced that he is, in fact, not going to make it. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul tells us, the time of my departure has come. Do you sense that finality in Paul's life? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And if, if you've read a lot of Paul's literature, you know how meaningful that is to Paul. He talks in other, in other passages about running the race, about doing all that he can to make sure he succeeds. And now he comes to his final days and he says, praise be to God. I have run the race successfully. Now, the reason I point out that 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter and that these are his final commendations is because I want you to notice the theme of the book of 2 Timothy. And the theme is this. How can the gospel 
continue on even without the life of the apostle to the Gentiles. And you think about that, I, I think some people might have been questioning that. Here was this great bulwark of the faith. The man who had taken the gospel from one coast all the way to the other. He had, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, made the gospel known, and now he is dying. Will the gospel continue? And here's what Paul says. Paul has confidence that it will. Even in the prayer that was mentioned this morning, it was mentioned that God who begins a good work will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. And here in Paul's churches, he's convinced of that. Here in this church, I'm convinced of that. And so we celebrate it. And yet, despite the fact that we put all of the trust and confidence in God and his sovereignty, he's also given us a task, hasn't he? And Paul recognizes that. Because when he comes to 2 Timothy, he doesn't just say, hey, listen up, God's going to continue his church, so don't worry about it. All's going to be well. No, he lays out precisely how the church is going to continue. And notice how he does it. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my child, by the way, he's talking to Timothy. Remember, this is the book 2 Timothy. He's writing to one of his disciples, somebody he's, he's brought to faith. So he calls him my child in the faith. You then, Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So do you see there's three generations here? Paul says, I held the gospel in this earthen vessel. I was a jar of clay, but the, the beautiful gospel was poured into me. And what I am intending to do is to give that to other faithful people so that they would take that and pour it into other faithful people. And let me ask you the question, did it work? Here we are. And if we could, if we could do a spiritual family tree, I bet nearly every one of us has the Apostle Paul somewhere back there. And here we have Redemption Bible Church. We have an opportunity for a spiritual tree to flourish and develop. And you know what it's going to take? It's going to take developing young men and women for the next generation. You know, when I was first asked to come preach here, I hadn't I had been to the previous church. Uh, I had been to Bethany, but I had never been here. So when I was asked to come and do this, I, I came, and I remember the first time I stood up and I began to preach. I was absolutely thrilled because I saw in this congregation not only the wisdom of gray hair, but I saw a lot of youths. And I saw a good arrangement of families that, that, that went through the whole spectrum. And I was so excited about that because there's vitality in that. And there's opportunity to develop the next generation and the one to, to come. And so this afternoon, what I'd like us to consider is a, is a particular question. Because here's the, here's the truth that I want us to just think about. 
Faithful men and women don't occur naturally. That's not natural. They are nurtured to be faithful. They don't occur naturally. And what I mean by that is, if we were to just say, you know what, again, coming back to, you know, God's sovereign, we're going to leave it in, in his hands. Well, of course, God is more than gracious. And so perhaps he would do something. But naturally, what tends to happen in the life of people is not that we just get better and better, is it? It takes hard work. So if this is true, faithful men and women must be nurtured, then the impetus of that is on this assembly. And you heard me right. It's on the assembly. One of the most impressive things, I must say, about this church is that you have succeeded, and I think gone beyond succeeded, with headwinds that would have crushed other assemblies, I think. Uh, you not only had the headwind of so far not having a lead pastor. That's a challenge. You also have the headwind of not having your own building. And when you add these together, it's like, how could an assembly survive? But when the spirit is in it, no wind can stand against it. And so I'm thankful for that. I think God has, in his goodness, confirmed through various ways that he wanted this assembly here in this place. And I praise the Lord for that. So since that is the case, since he's given you a year, then it's on us, again, once more to say, how then can we create a succession plan so that this assembly continues on? You know, I, I tell people this, uh, one of, the, one of the best things that can happen is that you never have to go out and try and find a pastor. You have pastors within your assembly. And I recognize the, the differing circumstances that led to this church situation. And I know that the church was in such a state previously. But what we want to establish is how do we get faithful men and women so that in the future, this church continues to multiply and is a blessing not only in this community, but is a blessing to other churches and other communities as God's light brightly shines from this place. And I think that the answer to that question has to do with preparing the next generation. So here's the question I want us to ask ourselves. How do we set up our kids to be successful? And by successful, please note, that I mean faithful. Because, of course, we live in a world where there are lots of people who want to set up their kids for success. But we want something more significant in our success. We want faithfulness. And so my argument is going to be from this passage today that there are two steps that we can do, two simple steps, two things that I bet are not going to be new to you. And it turns out that the things that are necessary for our sanctification and growth tend not to be the secret sauce. It tends to be the thing we knew all about the whole time, but we need to recommit to every time. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So notice with me in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and I'm going to begin in verse 10, and we're going to read down to verse 17. 
Here's what Paul says to his protege, Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and, in, and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving, being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, I thank you for this text. This is your word. Indeed, as we've even just read now, every word from you is breathed out by you. These are your words. And so as we come to you, we want you to use your spirit in your word through your servant to accomplish your good purposes. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity already to sing your praises. And may our hearts sing your praises as we hear the word proclaimed today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So how exactly are we going to set up our kids to be successful? I think there are a few things. The first step is this, expose young people to the scripture. A moment ago, I said, these aren't going to surprise you. And hopefully this one doesn't surprise you. But this is exactly what the scriptures teach us, that we need to expose our young people, the next generation, to scripture. Why should we do this? Now, Paul makes it quite evident. He says, it's because the scriptures are God's words. Notice again with me down in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. Now, if you have the King James Version, you'll see the word inspired. And a lot of times, if you talk theology, you'll hear this doctrine of inspiration. A lot of times we use the idea of inspired as somebody's inspired to make a, a painting or something. But this word here refers to breathe out. And the analogy is this. Every word of God is breathed out. Did you know that when you talk, you use oxygen? You breathe. You can't talk without air coming out. And what this passage then is saying is all scripture is breathed out by God and therefore is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. When we think about someone's words, what we understand about their words is that their words are a reflection of them, aren't they? How do you get to know somebody? You don't get to know somebody by sitting there and staring at them. That would be a little creepy. 
you don't quite get to know someone that way. Now, you may be able to get to know something about them by means of what they do, and so you can observe that with your eyes. But there's a depth in which you can only know somebody by attending to their words, what they say, what they reveal about themselves by what they say. You know, we value deeply the words of people. Have you ever had a loved one pass and then you heard a video or you saw a video of them speaking or you heard an audio of them speaking and it's like they're back. You want to hear every word they have to say and they're precious. When we come to the scriptures, I want you to recognize that these are the very words of the one who made you. And I want you to understand something about his word. God's words are unlike our words. I wish it could be that I said, let there be a sandwich. And there was a sandwich. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be incredible? I, I would say, let there be a Philly cheesesteak. And there would be a Philly cheesesteak. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of things I would say, let there be, and there would be. But my words don't quite work that way. But there's a power that attends God's words that, are dis that is distinct from the words that I could ever say. You see, these words ought to be precious to us because they are God's words, the one who made us. I've used the analogy before, but he's the one who made us. He's the one who's told us how we ought to live. He wrote the book on how we were made and what we were designed to. And so if we would merely listen to his words, then we would have good life. This is actually what 1 Peter, we've just been reading. Who desires to love life and to see good days? Peter says, if you want to do that, then you must attend to his words. The most precious possession, the most precious possession you have is the word of God. And if that's true, then do you not want to pass that on to those you love? We think in our homes, we have certain prized possessions, certain, perhaps a curio cabinet or something else that's been handed down from generation to generation. Let it be said of believers that this is what they've passed down from generation to generation. This is what is needed by all. And so why should we expose our children to the scriptures? Because they are God's inspired words. He has spoken them and we must pass them on. There's a second reason that flows from this same reason. And that is because the scriptures make them wise to salvation. Notice this is exactly what it says. Uh, here in chapter three, uh, Paul says, <clears throat> uh, verse 14 uh, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned them. And from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice a few things about this. That when he says they are able to make you wise for salvation, the analogy is they are able to give you insight into how one may be saved. The scripture teaches quite plainly 
that mankind is born into sin. We are by nature children of wrath. The world likes to think that, man, that babies are born innocent, but any, ch- any parent will quickly come to a realization that this is not the case. And as we look deeply into our own hearts, we know that we are fallen, we are broken, we are sinners. And we need something to save us. And the scriptures teach that what saves us is the very word of God. This is the power that God has given to redeem hearts. And here's the promise. The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation, to open your eyes like Lydia's heart was opened to believe. So if you value your child, if you value the next generation, then we must give them the scripture because this is what opens their eyes to salvation. I must note, though, of what it says because it says, which are able to make you wise for salvation. And the reason that I mention this is because we need to recognize that this is no guarantee, is it? We wish... I wish in many ways as I raise three daughters. I wish it were that we simply present the word and if we present the word, then any who hear it would be saved, would trust in the word. But scripture has never said that this would take place. But here's the situation. This is the very means by which God transforms sinners into saints. And if you care for the next generation, then set it before them. You can't make the water, or you you can't make the horse drink the water because you can draw the horse to the water, can't you? And in the same way, we can bring the word to the next generation. Our responsibility is not the convincing, but the teaching. In fact, notice what it says in verse 14. And and I'm going to read from the ESV, and then I'm going to tell you what the NIV says, because I think it takes a little better here. But the ESV says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. But this is what the NIV says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have been convinced of. And the reason I want to draw that out is because the first element is the human side. This is what you believed. The second element is passive. It means that somebody else was active in it. And so we rely fully upon the sovereignty of God. See, Timothy, his parents, what they did was they handed to him the word of God. But it was God opening the eyes so that his darkened eyes could believe and trust. So that he not only had learned it, but he became convinced of it. And oh, my prayer for your children and for the young people of this congregation is that they would not only hear the word, we must do that, but that they would be convinced of it. Of course, this means that we must be incredibly patient. And we're not always good at that. I've mentioned before that I grew up in a, in a church, in a church that preached the gospel. From the time I was five years old all the way until the time I was 18 years old. And when I graduated from high school, I graduated from Christianity. 
And I walked away and I did my own thing. But you know, when I was around the age of 20, 21, I was sitting at work and a thought popped into my mind, I need to read the Bible. Dangerous. Dangerous. And I was never the same. You see, I read the Bible and all of a sudden, that which was able to make me wise for salvation made me wise for salvation. And that which I could not do on my own, God, through his good grace, convinced me of it. But here's the thing. I had individuals in the church who had planted a seed. And they watered. And they watered. And they watered. And they watered. And I guarantee you that many of those people said, that is barren soil that will never bear fruit. <laughs> but you know, one day, when nobody else was looking at the ground, when everybody had abandoned the, the, the ground, because it is clearly parched ground that could bear no, no fruit, that seed was still there. And God gave the increase. Here we are in the midst of a people, and I guarantee you there are people sitting here and you're thinking of people as I'm saying this. And you're praying that God would bring forth fruit from their lives. Be patient, pray. And God very well may do that. And right now, give the seed to the next generation. Even the ones who you say, they're not listening. They're not paying any attention to what I'm saying. Keep Keep planting, keep watering. And praise be to the Lord, sometimes he gives the increase when you had completely given up on it. So what are we going to do if we want the next generation to succeed, to be faithful? We're, we have to expose them to the scripture because the scriptures are God's word, because the scriptures make them wise to salvation. But I think a third thing, this scripture is able to keep them faithful and fruitful. You see, once they have embraced the scripture, it's able to make them faithful and fruitful. Notice the end of verse 16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. But then notice what he says. And it is profitable. Profitable. You know what profitable means? It means it's useful for something. What's it useful for? For teaching. For reproof. For correction and for training in righteousness. Now, you may not be able to see it very clearly, but that's a path that I have up on the screen. And the reason that I put forth this path is because I think this is the analogy Paul is giving to us here. He says the scripture is profitable for teaching. Do you know what teaching does? Is it tells you what the right path is. It says this is the right path and you ought to be on it. Notice second, it's useful for reproof. Do you know what it does? Is it says, you're off the right path. Reproof means that we're wrong and we need to be told that we're wrong. And so it not only tells us what the right path is, it tells us when we're off the right path. Notice it's not only good for teaching, for reproof, it's good for correction. You're following the analogy, you probably know where I'm going next. Not only are you off the road, but here's how you get back on to correct you back to the right road. And not only then for correction, 
but for training in righteousness. And I, upon the analogy, I think it's this, that it teaches you not only what the right road is, not only when we're off the right road, not only to, how to get back on it, but how to stay on the right road. And let me ask you this question. Who's not in one of those situations? All of us are, aren't we? And maybe at one time we're in one, we're at another, we're at another. But here's the point. If, if the word of God is profitable for all four of those situations, then the word of God is profitable for your life situation. The word of God is profitable for your child. The word of God is profitable for every young person in this church. The word of God is profitable for all of us. It is what we need. I think sometimes we in this, uh, in this age of counseling, we say, we need help. Where are we going to find help? Well, let's go look for the psychologist. Let's go look for outside. And I'm not suggesting that there are not times where those things are necessary. But I'd simply say this, you can't abandon this when you do that because this is what tells us the right path. It's what tells us when we're off it, how to get back on it and to stay on it. Why should we give our young people and the, peop the next generation the word? It's because it's what they need. It's what they need. Do you believe the words of Hebrews chapter four? The word of God is alive and active. And you say, no, wait a second. The word of God is alive and active. This thing is alive and active. I remember in Philadelphia, I was with a, a young man and he was, he was coming out of a rather sinful lifestyle and he was reading the word and I remember reading this verse with him and he said, that's true. That is absolutely true. The word of God is alive. And what he was saying was that the word of God wasn't just deadness on the page, but to him, it was coming out. It, was vi it had vitality. It was changing his life. See, the word of God, according to Hebrews, is alive. It is active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you see what, what the analogy is? In their day, they couldn't really divide between those things. And they, they were essentially saying, it can divide what is otherwise indivisible. See, the word of God can penetrate and discern what's going on in the human heart. It's fascinating, isn't it? We tend to think we know ourselves. We don't. But do you know what does know us? The Word knows us. And there have been times where I've read the Word and I've come to know more about myself because I've seen myself in the Word. You see, it's alive. It's active. And if we believe it, then we must pass the Word on to the next generation. I'll come back to some application points on that first step, but let me go to the second step then. Step number two. Expose young people to godly examples. Expose young people to godly examples. Now, what I've provided there is a tree, a genealogical tree. And again, as we go back to, to saying all of us are related to other Christians who have come before us, 
we ought to provide examples to the next generation who come. And I want you to notice something about Timothy. If you look in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 5, one, very, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, this is what Paul says of Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Do you know what Paul's saying? Is he saying, I've seen the seed of the word in the grandparent, and then in the child, and then the grandchild. Praise be to God, this should be the example for us. Paul, or, P Timothy was exposed to the word by his mother and his grandmother. In fact, you'll notice that it says uh, here that in verse 14, as for you, continue in what you have learned. Well, if you ask the question, where did, Paul, where did Timothy learn this? He learned it from his parents. He says, has firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood, this word for childhood refers to being an infant. From, from infancy, from the earliest you could remember hearing, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are, ab which are able to make you wise for salvation. Do you see, Paul really believed that the example of a grandmother, an example of a mother was instrumental in the life of Timothy. And I believe that's the case. I want you to notice something because I think this is really encouraging, perhaps even to some who are sitting in here today. Did you notice that somebody wasn't mentioned? Timothy's father wasn't mentioned. And what we know of Timothy's father was that Timothy's father was a Greek. Now, we're not sure if Timothy's father was dead at this point or if he was alive and an unbeliever. We don't know. But Timothy was, grew up in a single faith household. That is, only one of his parents appears to have been a believer. And yet, here is a great worker of the faith in the early church who grows up in that situation to be faithful to the Lord. And the reason I mention that to you is because I know that there are single parents in here who, who would have never chosen to be in that situation. And yet, here you are. And you think that in some sense, your hand, one arm is tied behind you as you raise your child. Because so many other people have two hands. And yet, let me ask you, how many hands does it take to hand the Bible to your child? And a single parent can pass on the faith to those who come afterwards. And let me be an encouragement to you that way. So godly parents. But notice it's not just godly parents. And by the way, let, let me just stop and say this, that there's a there's another sense in which there is parenting in the church. You remember elsewhere in the pastoral epistles, Paul says that Timothy relate to the older men in the congregation as fathers and to the younger men as brothers and to the older women as mothers and to younger women as though they're your sister. Do you know what he's saying there? 
He's saying that we are all a family. And so here it is that if there is a young person within this assembly that doesn't have parents, they ought to have lots of parents. They ought to have many people who love them from this congregation, who stand in that place, giving them godly examples. But it's not just the example of parents, but it's also examples of people in the church. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Or I'm sorry, verse 10. Notice what he says about Timothy. He says, you, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Do you see what Paul says is, Timothy, you've not only followed the example of your grandmother and your mother, but you've followed my example as well. And my argument here then is that we ought, as church members, provide examples to the next generation who comes after us. Paul lists a number of things. He, in fact, lists nine things, and I think they're in three groups of three. The first thing is he says, you knew my teaching. You see, you knew, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. You knew what I taught, and you knew I actually lived it. Second, he says, you knew my way of life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You see, Timothy, you sat there with me when I wept writing those letters to those churches. You were there when I preached and taught those things, and then I went out and lived them. You see, you knew me, Timothy. And then he lists his third thing, his purpose, my persecutions and sufferings. And I think here he's saying, you knew that I was not hypocritical. I said these things, and then I was willing to suffer for them. Now, I don't want to walk through all of those things to develop them, but to step back and say this. Do you know the only reason Paul could say that of Timothy is because Timothy knew Paul well. Timothy knew Paul well. And it's for that reason that he could use him as a godly example to follow Coming to us then, here's the question for us. As Paul says to Timothy, my son in the faith, who is your son in the faith? Who here in this assembly is your daughter in the faith? We ought to have this. The next generation needs examples of godly people. And that means we must know each other and be committed to it. So, I should have done this earlier, expose people to godly examples, second point. So a succession plan that the scriptures give to us. How will this church not only last for one year, but for a hundred years? Here's the succession plan. It's a simple one. First, expose the next generation to the word of God. Do you want... Your children, do you want the children of this church to be successful? Did you know there's actually only one passage in all of Scripture that tells us how to be successful? It's in Joshua. And guess what it says? Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, only be or verse 7, only be strong and be very courageous, being careful, notice this, to do according to all 
the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. That was his word in that day. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Doesn't this fit just nicely with the analogy of the path? He says, Moses says to Joshua, how are you going to be successful? Here's what success looks like. Be courageous and don't forget the word of God. Don't go to the left or the right, say on the path that the word provides. So if we're going to have a successful church, we must pass the word on to the next generation. The second simple step, expose the next generation to godly examples. Could I encourage you today? Let me ask you a question in both of these. How can you grow this week in the amount of scripture that you pass on to the next generation? Maybe it is that in your home you, you commit yourself to devotions as a family. Maybe it is that you commit to the youth in this church to teach them with Sunday school or whatever other opportunity, Wednesday night opportunities as the Lord gives opportunity in the future to commit to passing on the word to the next generation, which leads me to the second point. How are you building relationships with people in this assembly? Do the young people of this church know you? And let me not leave it just on those who are older. Let me ask you, youth, do you know some of the older people in this assembly? And may I say, the healthiest churches are multi-generational churches. They're churches where the older people know the names of the youth group and they pray for them and they say something to them. So that when those youth graduate from high school and they enter into that period where they're no longer in the youth group and now they're in the main service and they're sitting there thinking, do I belong here? They look around and they say, I know him, I know her, I know him, I know her. And they stay because they see godly examples. Would you commit to being that type of example to the next generation? God's calling you to it. And so I ask you to do it. Father, I thank you that every single one of us have benefited from these two simple points. Somewhere along the way, people committed to giving us the word. Thank you that somewhere along the way, people committed to being godly examples. Oh, Father, today I thank you for Chauncey, a man who died before I ever came back to faith, but who committed his life to loving me as an unbeliever and to spreading the seed of the word in my heart and to watering it as often as he could. And I thank you, Lord, that right now, I think he's smiling in heaven, knowing that you did good with that word. I pray that these saints sitting before me would commit to spreading the seed of your word, to watering it in the lives of the next generation, so that, Father, this church would one day celebrate 100 years because of the seeds planted today. In Jesus' name, amen.